Welcome to the Fatty Z Musky Podcast. I'm Andy. Joined to my right. Who is that? Vance. Hi, Vance. Hi. Hi. We have uh, Ranger, who is uh, directly across from Vance. Vance is in front of Ranger. Mm-hmm. And I have two Rangers in the pole barn right now, mm-hmm. like the actual boat Rangers. Wouldn't be here for any other reason. <laughs> Need something done. Need something done. We got giant decals uh, we're going to be putting on. Um, but we have Todd Young on the phone. Hi, Todd. Hello. And we have our very special guest this evening, Kevin. Hi, Kevin. How's it going? It's oh, going Hello. great. Kevin is a student of fisheries management and conservation, or as we're going to just bluntly put this, a fish biologist. And That works. That works. And we're going to throw nothing but fastballs at this guy tonight. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I'm ready. All right. Perfect. Well, let's let's hammer through these plugs. Fatty Z Musky products, fattyzmusky.com. We're on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. Um, check out the rod holders. I'm Last show I said I was going to show our little T-Bar Captain's Pack. I haven't assembled them yet, but they're out there. You probably saw the pieces, Vance. Very nice. Very nice. You heard that here from Vance. <clears throat> Professional. Very. And uh, check us out if you have any questions about rod holders, anything at all. Feel free to contact me, and I'll give you an honest assessment and recommendation. You can also uh, find the baits at Hogan's Hut in Stowe, New York, and Muskie Tackle Online, and Team Rhino Outdoors. So be sure to look at those. The uh, current inventory in the podcast studio is very low, so I would check those two retailers online if you're not near Stowe, New York. So than that, Muddy Creek Fishing Guides. Muddy Creek Fishing Guides, mcfishingguides.com. Check out the website. Lots of nice photos on there. Give us a call. Not going to get real involved in it here because we are pretty well booked in the early season. But uh, we've got a lot, still got lots of openings later on. If you know when you're coming up, get a hold of us. You know, once again, I've had, you know, I'm, I'm dealing with sending dates to people. They get back to me a few days later, and then those dates are fixed. So uh, that's just the situation we're in. Give us a call. We're going to do everything we can. Vance and I are ready to go. We got to spend some time out on the lake here this last couple of days and just driving around, and it was fun. We'll maybe talk about that in the podcast, but it was really fun what we got to see. And even catch. Okay, Vix Marine and Sports Center. Check them out for uh, service and a plethora of boats that they sell. Starcraft, Starwelds, Rangers. Uh, thank you to Ranger Boats for sponsoring this podcast as well. Um, the Chautauqua Lake Showdown, June 23rd, put on by Muskie's Inc., Chapter 69, and Zach Baker. Uh, get a hold of him if you want to sign up. That's going to be a really good tournament. Uh, it's a one-day event. $35 for non-members, 25 for members of Muskie's Inc. There's a big fish pot, uh, and there's going to be some great giveaways uh, and stuff for kids at the end, so check that out. Perfect. And Muskie's Inc., you just heard one of the local tournaments going on, and that's not the only one. There's many local chapters doing a lot of tournaments. Mm-hmm. New York's actually doing like their own circuit, which is interesting. I, I think there's like seven tournaments um, it's like the 
NYMTT, some something neat like that. Uh, but wow, that that sounds really fun. Yeah, so yep. there's like a tournament every month, uh, all the way to November. So check that out. And it's just something neat that you know local chapters do. Yeah, so get involved with your local chapter. Um, they Muskies Inc. They've been this is a long time nationwide voice, and definitely something that's uh, you know I can't see the downside of it. No, so why not do and it? He, here's one of the really neat things about uh, Muskies Inc. Is you know when we used to get our tournament schedule, I would look at it, and you know you could take those dates, and I would look forward to going to each one. I would put it on the calendar, like. This is what I'm doing this weekend. So all excuses are out. Like, this is what I have to do. Mm-hmm. I got to get my work done. I got to get stuff done on the yard because I at least get these four weekends that I'm going to go do these tournaments. Sometimes they can give you a little uh, advantage to get out on the water. That's right. Something to look forward to, a little carrot dangling in front of your face. If Yeah. If you're yep. working. Make your plans. They, they, you know, we schedule them in the middle of the winter and, uh, it's like, okay, this is what I'm doing this weekend, this weekend, this weekend. Uh, fun stuff. Perfect. St. Croix Rods, best rods on earth. Uh, check them out if you're looking for a uh, new fishing rod. You guys are getting some new fishing rods, aren't you? Possibly. It all depends on how our storage goes on, on our boats. So we're tinkering right now. And it's to the final you know, final hours we got the final countdown <laughs> a week and we're going to be on the water and we're scrambling to see where we're going to put things i finally got all the stuff all my baits in the in the boat today and stuff and uh rods are the last thing nice yeah. any baits of those of mine maybe one okay <laughs> i'm hoping a whole <laughs> tackle bag full oh yeah <laughs> yeah i brought your walleye stuff back nice <laughs> okay so Todd, the first fish in your boat was. I want to hit this real quick. Let's hold on, Vance. First fish in your boat, a trout. <laughs> <laughs> Todd, the first fish in your boat, uh, musky. <laughs> That's right. He broke his boat in on on uh, on a musky lake, man. I'm not. Trying. I, I was. He had a spinning That's rod. Soft. He had a spinning <laughs> rod. A spinning pole and little dinky lures. I was trying to catch a walleye. <laughs> okay. I was in a pretty good musky area, though. Yeah. <laughs> fair. We got some footage. We, we it know. took five minutes. That was hilarious. It was a 30-minute yeah. fight. Thing jumped 30 times. <laughs> had him all the way down fun. to the spool twice. Mm-hmm. Epic. Anyways, Kevin, you still with us? Oh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> All right, I just I just knew both of those guys caught fish, and I needed to at least bring up. I'm glad you didn't say white bass. I caught a trout. <laughs> that might be the last trout that ever visited that boat. That's, that's probably true. <laughs> well, it's not the only trout that visited that boat. Yeah, I caught that's two. That's right, you got two. That's embarrassing. <laughs> and a hybrid bass. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> Oh man! It's also been in international waters. I drove, yeah, I, I drove to Canada and stuff. <laughs> yeah, I was all over the place with that thing. All right, all right, okay, okay, Kevin. Now it's all you. I had to, I had to just 
enlighten the crowd here about what's going on. <laughs> so, all right, Kevin. So, fisheries biologist is what we're calling short. I've already covered that. What exactly do you do? Have you done to earn our generic title of fishery biologist? <laughs> um. Well, I guess I'll start with my undergraduate degree, which was in fisheries management at the University of Connecticut. Um, that started in 2007, and that was focused, you know, you have two basic years of, you know, basic biology, but then the last two years, for me, I did my undergraduate thesis, so you choose a species and a region, and you really, you know, tear it apart and try and understand it, and I won't go into detail on that, but I was kind of focused more around um, anadromous fish, so like a salmon, so a species that lives in the ocean and comes back and spawns in fresh water, it's a, a river herring species here on the East Coast. Um, but more importantly, during that time, I started working for the Inland Fisheries Division in Connecticut, and I spent five years with those guys, um, all seasonal stints, you know, six months on, six months off. Um, but when I finished up there, we were doing, I did a lot of crew leading. Um, we managed a northern pike spawning marsh, so we would, in the springtime, we had a marsh built into the shore of the river. The fish would come in, attracted to the warm water in the marsh, spawn, and we'd you know, catch them in the marsh give them out, males and females, and we'd spawn our own fish and take our own juveniles and then stock them into our pike lakes. Um, and we did a lot of walleye stocking. And Connecticut's a very, very diverse fishery, believe it or not, for such a small state. Um, we have a lot of a lot of different sport fisheries and a lot of people that do come from outside states to fish for especially our, our northern pike program. So I definitely, probably where I really sank my teeth into dealing with the ESOC species, um, Following there, I did a little bit of time with the U.S. Geological Survey, doing some radio telemetry work, looking at American eels around hydro facilities. You'll find it's kind of where my work has moved towards. I do a lot of work with migratory fish and usually around hydroelectric dams, um, just looking at upstream and downstream um, effects, or effects on upstream and downstream movement of these fish. Um, so following that, I moved to working for the diadromous fish program, so diadromous meaning fish that you know, move back and forth between fresh and salt water. Um, for the state of Connecticut, I did two years with those guys, and then I moved up to Maine and started working as essentially a it was fish passage specialist, but a, basically a fish biologist for the hydropower companies on the Penobscot River. Um, and this was oh, wow. you know, managing for movement of fish around hydroelectric facilities. Um, there's two very large-scale dam removals on the river, so there's a lot of work at the university um, based around those dam removals. And part of the agreement with removing these dams was basically the hydro facilities had to have the person that I became. So I was brought in as that person and worked for them for a while. And then the university had an opening for a master's program. And realistically, I, I mean, I've known for eight, nine years now, you really need a master's degree to get a full-time fisheries biologist job with a state or federal agency, which is my end goal. So there was an opening here and private sector was, it was enjoyable to work in. Um, but the stability was a little up in the air. It's you're not working for you know, say, small, you know, state division or something. You're dealing with my my main bosses were in Brazil and Canada, so it was always this kind of interesting, I don't know, working atmosphere working for the hydro company. So the opportunity to go back to school, get a master's degree, and then continue back on that track to you know, I'd, I'd like to work either migratory fish passage or inland fisheries. I, I've worked some in the marine world, but I'm, I'm much more interested much more interested in the interaction between the two or strictly inland fisheries. So I'm now at the University of Maine, and my work is all focused around those dam removals and looking at um, 
movements of fish, so American Shad, American Eels, Atlantic Tomcod. Um, it's before and after dam removal, and this is kind of what I was talking to the other night. Um, the, the way that we're doing this is I'm going to drop a, a very quick jargony thing, and then I'll say it in a terms that I hope make sense, but basically we're using a, a bone in the fish's head called an otolith. A lot of you are probably familiar with that, um, but the way it's a calcium carbonate structure, so it's just a bone in the fish's head. And during the growth of that fish, it's continuously dropping down more calcium carbonate. Um, and so you can cut it in half and look at it like a tree ring. You, know, you can count one, two, three, you can count how many years out this fish has grown. What I'm doing is what's called laser ablation inductively coupled plasma mass spectrometry, which is a really fancy way of saying I'm taking a laser and I'm shooting it across the bone. It pulverizes the bone and then tells you the chemical compound in that bone. And that's related to the ambient water around that fish. So by burning that bone with that laser, we can see when the fish is in salt water, when the fish is in fresh water, or when the fish is in brackish water. And so we're looking at resonance times in the different water types before and after those dams are removed, looking at habitat shifts after a habitat is quote-unquote restored. There's still a lot of dams in the system, but it's now easier, theoretically, for these fish to move upstream and spawn. And so that's what I'm working on now. But to kind of get off of that a little bit, and how I ended up talking with you guys is I, I pike and musky fish a lot. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that's basically where my free nice. time goes into and my free research time is into, you know, those fisheries. So I'm not currently working with them now, but I have an interest in them, so I essentially research them the same way as I do at work, but it's more for recreational fun. I hope that helps. That's in- that's. <laughs> Yeah, that's great. That's incredible. I mean, uh, Vance and I just had some stuff happen this weekend, and him and I were both saying I mean, it's fun to fish, but we were just watching the fish. I mean, people might say that about us, like taking guys out fishing every day. Oh, great. That's an unbelievable job. What you're doing, I, I could see myself getting so caught up into that. Like, yeah, I know every everything's a job, but oh, my gosh, would that be fun to do? Yeah, we, all that stuff, we, handling this fish and studying, yeah. that would be incredible. We went out yep. walleye casting at night, and I brought a big mm-hmm. uh, spotlight. We had more fun with the spotlight. We casted like <laughs> oh, yeah. we casted yeah. like 20, 20 times, and then we just started <laughs> perusing around, looking at everything. Survey, oh, yeah, it was like incredible. Yeah, it was. We had so much fun. <laughs> not done that in so long we saw but, uh, we yeah. saw giant muskies uh way yeah. in the shallows it was incredible and the one oh, i can imagine uh, the one uh i want to we wouldn't probably which is the most interesting is i thought i saw a muskie and there was this big body it was shaped like a muskie but it was it was almost like stuck in what you would see on the back of somebody's truck or on somebody's boat like a decal it's like yes, turning coiled. yeah turning but it was just sitting there like that. And then I'm like, well, maybe that isn't one. Well, we went out and came back in and, and looked at that spot, and it was gone. So it was yeah. d- definitely a muskie. Clearly, the only logical explanation is, is probably is Bigfoot. Bigfoot. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Bigfoot, definitely. <laughs> Especially yes. at and that, that proves Bigfoot is real. But we, <laughs> we were speculating that you know maybe it was stuck in that position dropping eggs. What do you know? When, when they're... Dropping eggs naturally, do they, I mean, sometimes just, like, freeze up like that, or? 
I so I've I've only watched Northern Pike spawn, mm-hmm. and there's I, as weird as it sounds, it's almost like a shimmy <laughs> when they're dropping the eggs. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't. I, I really haven't spent that much time watching them spawn. Honestly, it was more getting them in there and then knowing the time of the year and the water temperatures to start getting the juveniles back out. Um, but just from watching other fish spawn, there's usually some sort of movement. I'm not sure. This time of year, I don't know what your water temps are, but especially at night like that, it's not uncommon this time of year to see fish, I mean, literally in six inches of water. Like, I see pike with their backs out of the water. Mm-hmm. And they're they're basically there in the evening just trying to, like, if there's, you know, any kind of woody debris or mud on the bottom, it's going to hold that heat, and those fish just sit there. And you can get, I mean, you can literally get right on top of these things and poke them. That's, and just be exact, the that's exactly what it's we saw. Amazing. Yeah, that's crazy. Yeah, that's exactly what we saw. Did you, you take know, a 40, stick? Yeah, 40, pound, a lot 40 of pound thermal. They're trying to soak up as much heat as they possibly can before it cools off again for the night. Okay. Yeah. I, I would poke them with a stick. I mean, some of them were swimming pretty good, but yeah. that one was just sitting there, like chilling. Maybe it was sleepy. I don't know. <laughs> do, do, do muskies and pikes sleep? I don't know. Some fish do sleep. There's a fish called a tautog that that sleeps, but I haven't really looked into much more than that. Other than everyone always talks about that fish that sleeps. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, yeah. what about yeah. like a shark? Like, if it stops swimming, does it die? Like you always hear that in elementary school. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I don't think so. But I don't know. There's some tuna species that they just they have to keep swimming because if they don't swim, they can't get oxygen because the, it's not flowing over their gills. It's just the way they're designed. They just have to keep swimming. That's, that's why probably... when you catch them, you, when you throw them back, you literally throw them in the water like a football to keep them going. Because if you just the first one I caught. This fish called a false albacore. The first time I caught it, I let it go. I just put it in the water and it just rolled over and died. Yeah. And the guy came up to me. He was all upset about it. I had no idea. I was, you know, young. Yeah. And it, he was like, you got to throw them like a football or they don't go. And I was like, really? And so he caught one, like, you know, an hour or two later. He's like, watch. And he threw it as hard as he could face first and kicked once and then shot off again at like 20 miles an hour. And I was like, huh. What do you know? You, you should have just punted it because you're like, I'm not a quarterback, I'm a kicker. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> they wouldn't like that. <laughs> All right, so. So what did you notice about those pikes when you were, because you studied that, their spawning habits, right? Uh, yeah, I mean, we it, was, it wasn't so much studying them as much as more working with them. Mm-hmm. So knowing, you know, roughly when they showed up and what kind of conditions they, you know, wanted for spawning and predation on the fry and it was very much applied management we weren't really doing research we were using old science that was done before i got there and basically following a cookbook so to speak for spawning pike yeah. um but i mean i've definitely watched them a lot up and down other parts of that river yeah, i mean like your average musky fisherman esox angler you know that i i know that the pike, what's told to me, the pike spawns like 10 degrees in water temperature. Cooler. Cooler. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, yeah. then, and then the yeah. muskies come in. Do you, is that, did you guys notice that? Is that normal? Is it true? Yeah, so definitely in Connecticut where I was dealing with the pike spawning, and here in Maine we have a lot of northern pike here, we'll actually have fish that if we have, like this year ice out was pretty late here in Maine, it was just a few weeks ago, and fish were already being caught in the trap nets under like a foot of ice so they're already going up and they'll actually end up spawning under the ice on a year like that um mm-hmm. in Connecticut we never had that problem because the ice always went quick and the river flooded 
and those fish will come up and spawn over like flooded button bush, like terrestrial vegetation. That's what we really looked for in their spawning areas. Um, as far as the muskies up here, which is my only interaction with muskies, is the main muskies. Um, I haven't been up into the main, the area of Maine where they spawn, honestly, because mud season happens up there. It's all dirt logging roads, and they close most of the gates. Okay, so you, so you just really said mud season during spawning time. You just called it mud season. I, I want to learn something here. Mud season is <laughs> essentially spring and everything's muddy, right? Oh, yeah. It's all dirt roads, so everything thaws because we have all that frost. All it's, you know, Everything's frozen up here for like seven months. And then it just flash melts. And literally what is a dirt road normally turns to like two feet of just soup. And it's full of shale, so people drive onto it, they sink, and then they get flat tires. And they're just stuck there. <laughs> well, that's... <laughs> Had an insult yeah. to injury yeah. right there. <laughs> it's it's pretty amazing. Yeah, we actually got a flat today. We were up north with one of the work trucks, and I've been kind of making fun of the tires on it for a year or so here. They're a little bald. They're a little old. And we were going down a dirt road. They got a little soupy. And we were going up the hill, and I just heard, psh, psh, psh. like, hey, we got a flat. We can get new tires. <laughs> Everybody in the car was not quite as excited, but it was a fun tire. You, you like, turned out. around high-fiving <laughs> everyone, but no one, like, they left you hanging. <laughs> What's that? You turned around to high five everyone, and they just left you hanging. Oh yeah, they definitely. I mean, I think they thought it was funny that I was so excited to get out and change the tire because the spare was great. The spare was in awesome shape. But yeah, no, it's, everything I run, I run like ten ply mud mud tires up here because it's just if you go up that way, you'll end up thrashing tires. It's the muskies up here until you go over to like the Canada side. The muskies up here, you know, three and a half, four hour drive through the woods. It's my dad and I went up last year and we drove for 12 hours total, back, like out and back, fish for the day and passed one car the entire time. So wow. it's basically uncharted territory out there. But because of that, I don't get up there to see when these fish are spawning. I've talked to a few of the wardens that go up there because they have access. Um, and they, you know, they said that it's usually late May. So at that point, I'm assuming the water temps are probably. 13, 14 Celsius, so high 50s, low 60s. Does that make sense mm -hmm. for you guys? Mm -hmm. It's exactly where yeah. we were at, where we were just watching this happen. Yes, like last yeah. night. <laughs> we're in the 56, 58-degree no, water temp range. Yeah. Yeah. And that's what we see. And with the pike, it's, you know, honestly, high 30s, low 40s, the fish start moving. And usually we had fish coming to the pike marshes 42 to like 47 degrees. And same with mm -hmm. the chain pickerel in the you know the ponds, the smaller pickerel. It's the same deal, right? Mm -hmm. Out there, yeah. you know, they're right over the weeds. Yeah. Okay. Now I, I want to back up. You were talking about the pike that were coming into spawn under ice. Yeah. And yeah. so, is it more of a ambient light kind of thing that they're sensing, or is it literally like temperature of of water that triggers them to go spawn? Yeah, so photo period does play a big role in a lot of fish, um, whether it be feeding habits or reproductive habits, migrations. I think it's some of that, but I also think what it is is a lot of times these, I mean, by us, they all pretty much are spawning in feeder creeks, which are essentially flooded bogs this time of year. And mm -hmm. even though there's still ice in the lake, if you go up into those feeder bogs, the, the water is you know, sometimes 5, 8, 10 degrees Fahrenheit warmer. So the water entering the lake, your outlet or your inlets will actually start melting well before the rest of the lake. So I was out ice fishing on the lake. We had 32 inches of ice, and the inlet was melting, and, you know, the state was already out there doing their, their trap netting and getting fish going up to spawn. So I think it's a little of both. It's 
you know, the time of year, okay. but I think it's definitely temperature driven and it's, it's that thermal cue. That's how we caught the fish in Connecticut with these pike marshes that we knew would warm up. And that's why they modified these flooded areas where they knew pike came to to spawn and they modified them with, you know, tra- and trap nets to actually trap those fish playing onto that thermal cue. They knew the fish would come there and then they'd be able yeah. to capture the fish and choose what fish they wanted to spawn. So I think it's, it's a little of both, but I think it's mostly it's that temperature dependent, if I had to guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because that, that, I always thought it was temperature, but when you said the ice, and I'm just like, hmm, what else yeah. could be oh, a major influence? So that that they're natural. The the pike spawn up there, that natural reproduction is working yeah, pretty the good. He doesn't want them. The, 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 so here in Connecticut, the state brought them in as it was recreational opportunities, but it was also um, abundant centra- sunfish control. So perch and sunfish, yeah. and it was brought in for. It, it was kind of like a, you know, two-in-one deal. Up here in Maine, mm-hmm. people brought the fish, likely from, you know, the Connecticut River, Vermont, New Hampshire, because they're not native to anywhere in, in New England. I think it's pretty much uh, the fish in the Connecticut River were in the eight, late 1800s that came in there. Um, but people have been moving them around. But they showed up in the 70s in Maine and the Belgrades. And the thing about Maine, so the Connecticut River has natural reproduction in Connecticut for pike, but the majority of the other lakes, they just don't reproduce. And by us, the majority of the pike spawning happens over flooded terrestrial vegetation. So you really need those flooded bogs. And most of Connecticut's so built up, we just don't have those anywhere but along the Connecticut River. Up here in Maine, these lakes aren't, I mean, they're built up with homes, but the lakes are still allowed to, the rivers back up every spring. We get a lot of snow. There, there are dams on these rivers, but it's not, you know, it's not regulated by Connecticut. So they're allowed to flood. So all these areas, the headwaters, a lot of these lakes flood, and it's all that button bush and shad bush and, it's the terrestrial vegetation those fish spawn on. So when people brought pike to Maine, it was, I mean, it was essentially the worst thing ever. I enjoy fishing for them, um, but they just breed like crazy up here. So once they're in a water body, if it has those you know those flooded headwaters, which most of our big lakes do, they're essentially there to stay. And some of the lakes by me, they've been trying to trap net the fish out, and it's just it's just not happening. And the same thing Can't happened with the muskies. The muskies <laughs> were stocked in Quebec. And nobody in Maine knew they stocked them in Quebec, but the headwaters that they stocked run into Maine. So all of a sudden, in the 80s, muskie showed up in Maine in the St. John River, and everybody was scratching their head, and then Quebec was like, oh, well, we stocked those. We didn't think they were going to move. But the first high water event in the spring, the muskies went downstream, and now they're all through the St. John River Basin. So we have the spawning habitat. They're actively, there's no pike stocking in Maine. There's no muskie stocking in Maine, and it is thick. I mean, I've gone out and caught 10 muskies in a day, and I've gone out and caught almost 40 pike in a day. Wow. And there's nobody wow. targeting them because it's, it's <laughs> pike. I mean, it's trout and salmon fishing here. That's mm-hmm. what people come here for. And there go, there's some smallmouth guiding, but no one's fishing for the Esox up here, really. There's some people, but when I'm out there, I, I don't see anybody ever. And the people that do catch them, kill them. Okay, that's. Wants you to kill them. That was my next question. Is there a bounty oh, yeah. on these things? Do they say if you <laughs> oh, catch yeah. them, kill them? Big, big time bounty. Oh, yeah. Wow. Okay, so I was always told, and this probably isn't right. It could be. I'm going to throw it out there. Was like when, uh, when they stalk, like my little local river here, I was always told that the little baby muskies that they drop in, they're six month old. They start going upstream, and they just go upstream. I and, and what was told to me was so they could hide from 
the bigger water, the predators and all that stuff. And as they grow bigger, they'll kind of come down. They'll, they'll still have some seasonal movements, but as they start outgrowing their water, is, is that, does that hold any water? <laughs> I, I don't know. The work that I've looked at in the St. Lawrence where those fish are spawning in those bays, it seems like the fish will spawn, they'll hatch, and those juveniles will stay there, stay there in that water until like November. Mm-hmm. and they'll drop out. Um, those are some older studies. Up here, I haven't really looked. I do know, and, but I, I think it's more like you and I talked about the other night with stunting here. If you go to the headwaters of the St. John, the fish are much smaller, and there's a lot of them. And as you work your way down, there's less fish, and they get bigger. And I think it's more of a stunting thing, because if you look at the you know the old catches, the archive catches in the 80s, they're catching much bigger fish in those headwater areas than there are now. There's a lot of fish now, but they're small. And I don't know if that's that because I don't know where most of the spawning is happening. There's a few places where people have you know actually taken video of them spawning in the river system. Because I'm not sure where that's happening, I wouldn't feel comfortable saying that that's a thing that occurs. But I just I do know from some of the telemetry studies that were done on the river here, some of these fish seem like they don't move much. There's literally mm-hmm. fish that have been recaught, you know a mile apart, and that seems like a big movement, but then there's other fish that have moved 60, 80 miles in a year. Mm -hmm. Um, So I don't, I'm not sure, honestly, and I I have caught much smaller muskies lower down in the system, Um, so I imagine there's probably spawning in that lower region, but that's to say, I mean, a fish that's 25 inches, there's no reason that fish couldn't have moved the 300 miles down to where I caught it from headwater areas. I'm really not sure, and there's really not much research. The only research put into the muskies here that I found is in response to our native Atlantic salmon restoration, because when the muskies got in the St. John River, there was a big panic that they were going to eat all the salmon smolts that were stocked. So there was a lot of research looking at where those muskies were, and they did stomach samples, and they also did a lot of telemetry just to see if they crisscrossed with where those native fish were. And What did they find? really all the research that has been done on those fish that river system is basically untouched from a biological standpoint what what did they do you remember what they found in that study yeah basically they eat uh bullheads and suckers <laughs> and very very few salmon believe it or not <laughs> I, I think it's because so those salmon smolts they're up in headwater streams until they run so when they're par the little baby salmon they're up there for you know two to five years five years being the max um before they out migrate but they out migrate when the water is below 10 degrees Celsius, so below 50 degrees Fahrenheit. And at that point, the muskies really, I mean, they're feeding, but they're not, you know, the aggressive 70 yeah. degrees Fahrenheit yeah. muskies that were fishing in the summer. So I think they basically concluded that basically those smolts are flying and they just shot over the heads of the muskies. And the muskies are digging yeah. around the bottom, grabbing suckers, fallfish, and bullheads. And I think bullheads were the largest part of their diet, which, I mean, they have spines, but it makes sense. It's a, you know, scaleless, soft fish that has a lot of mass mm-hmm. and fairly easy to catch i imagine that's that's interesting so all of this is done on a river correct like the majority of yep yeah there yeah there's lakes in the headwater region and there's also a dam called mactaquac dam that makes a giant head ponds mm-hmm. that's over in canada i'm not familiar with that region um there's a lot of guys who do fish that and that's where a lot of the telemetry work is done but i i know absolutely nothing about that ecosystem over there everything that i know is main stem river and then headwater areas. Yeah. I wonder if, you know, I just think that there's probably a lot, when it comes to migration of muskies, there's a lot different from an inland lake and that river system. Oh, yeah. I just think with all oh, that yeah, current sure. and flow and where it's going. Mm-hmm. 
you know yeah. those parts of rivers could be different at any any given time so we you know thinking back to a couple nights ago and uh you know we were seeing the musky spawn in that area and you're you're saying that you know maybe those fingerlings and the the baby muskies are kind of staying in that that home range mm-hmm. of I, shallows the, uh, of the shallows but mm-hmm. you know after they hatch and they they bounce around uh you know maybe they they spend the majority of their life in that little section of lake they're you know i've read articles and heard people say that you know a big fish has a home range mm-hmm. yeah um todd you you caught a 52 you mm-hmm. know like what like 100 yards off of itself you know in yeah. back-to-back years it was in the same area it was right off the same mark we did that last year with a large fish i'm wondering if these like muskies on chautauqua lake are staying in that same area their entire life uh you know mm-hmm. now they <clears throat> this home range thing would they break home range to go spawn yeah and i think so a lot of the work that i've read about on the saint lawrence i've read a lot about that just because of the closest body of water to me with native fish um it actually appears that the fish will repeat spawn in the same areas and, mm-hmm. again, it was older papers. I'm sure there's more recent literature on this, so I, hopefully someone can tell me that. Um, but it seemed as though the fish that they had tagged would come in, spawn in these bays, and would repeat spawn in those bays every year. Now, as far as after they left those bays, how far they migrated, um, there's a bunch of different papers that show it seems like some fish honestly hang around and some fish move far. So I remember one of the fish here on the St. John, I believe it was, because everything's in kilometers, I think it was 80 kilometers, the fish left the head ponds, went 80 kilometers upstream, and then returned the next year to wow. the basic area. That's crazy. I, I could have butchered that entirely. It's been a while since yeah. I've read that paper, but the idea was basically this muskie went really, really far and then came back. That's a and lot other of... fish were just moving you know, a kilometer or two, just basically staying in that same area. So I don't know if that was a spawning movement. I'm not, I'm not, I don't remember what they concluded, but there was quite a few fish, because there are fishways on those dams that move down through fishways. They actually, some of the fish moved through the turbines on Mactaquack Dam and survived and came back through the upstream fishway, if I remember it correctly. They so probably, the fish move around like crazy. That's insane. Now, <clears throat> I, I recently listened to a meat eater podcast that they had like a bunch of salmon experts or something. They said the salmon know to come back to, you know, their river mm-hmm. based yep. off a of smell is that true yep. yeah and it's so then and this is kind of when you guys brought up the thing about the the juvenile uh, muskies that kind of made me wonder here so i'll just jump to river herring so river herring what we collectively call alewives and blueback herring it's it's basically like a small shad it's a fish that lives in the ocean spawns in fresh water returns to the ocean and what we actually do here is very similar to what's done they do with atlantic salmon here too you can take the adults from one stream. So if fish are spawning in stream A, like 40 miles away, even more than that, doesn't matter how far away it is. You take those adults to another stream. You stock them there before they've spawned. Those fish will spawn and leave and head back downstream, the fish that survive. They won't ever come back to that stream, but their young that survive and go back to the ocean are now, they have a chemical cue to that stream so they'll come back to that stream so you can feed bodies of water with fish from other bodies of water those adults the next year when they come back if they come back aren't going to be fooled and go to the, they're going to go back to where they were originally caught from mm-hmm. but the juveniles are now homing to where they were mm-hmm. born 
know, I don't know. All I know is with our pike on the Connecticut River, those pike kept coming back to that spawning marsh every year. And we took juveniles, you know, to other ponds that are now with the fish are landlocked. But those fish that we released from the marsh back into the river, I don't know if those fish were homing or if, again, it was that thermal cue. But talking with the anglers who fished that stretch of river, basically starting in February, they sat there and they posted up right by the entrance to our spawning marshes, and they said that the pike are just stacked here. So it's, it's almost as though they're waiting before there's even a thermal cue. So I don't know if at that point it is a chemical cue, and if that is something that ESOCs do. I really don't know. It would be really interesting. I'm sure there's a paper somewhere where someone has looked at that. Um, but I spe- specifically remember one of the papers where they followed a bunch of radio-tracked muskies. They specifically said, we don't know if it's a chemical cue or what, but these fish are coming back and spawning in the same areas. Yeah. So I don't know if you smell, took muskies whatever, yeah. from one lake, put them in a good spawning area. If they spawned, if the juveniles are now going to come back to that area, I- I'm really not sure. It would be a really interesting study to do. Now, that, that kind of leads into that question that Todd was talking about. I think this would be appropriate time. Yeah. Yeah, the one with, okay, so let's put some habitat down. This is what Muskie's Inc. is pushing for. Let's take a stretch of shoreline. Let's put some riprap. Let's put some gravel down. Or or make it so the the fish that you're targeting make it appealing to them to spawn, correct? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Now, is is that fish going to seek that out? Can that fish come in? Like a, a spawning, a fish is ready to lay eggs and it's swimming around in the shallows. Is it just going to lay when it's time, or are they going to say, ooh, this is a nice spot. I'm going to lay eggs here. I think it's probably with a new... So if you put a new structure like that, we do that Mm -hmm. all the time here on the East Coast. So all of our restoration work is just that. We remove a dam, oftentimes on a river that, you know, the the runs are extirpated, They're, they're extinguished. There are no runs on that river anymore. And we want to bring in seed fish like we do. So we'll go in there, and before we start seeding, we want to, quote-unquote, restore. It's very hard to restore. You know, we've messed up a lot of things, especially on the East Coast. Our rivers are very dammed and very channelized. But So if we go in and we'll do some restoration work, and we'll do, you know, say we'll restore some of the headwater ponds. So alewives will come in and they'll spawn in slower pooled areas. So say we restore an area like that. They now have access to that point. When we seed it, we know the little guys are going to come back, and they do, and they'll, they'll come back and they'll spawn in those areas. But you also get fish that stray. So you'll get fish from other systems that accidentally end up there, and the same thing will happen. So my guess with something like a muskie, if you went in and put muskie spawning habitat in an area, the, before you do it, the best thing to do would be to, however you could do it, it would be hard because radio telemetry is extremely expensive, but it, you know, just doing visual surveys and seeing where mm-hmm. these fish are trying to spawn, and if you could somehow go to those areas just to give them a better, better chance of running into your you know, newly restored spawning habitat, I think you'd have a better chance. If you were to just take a, a, you know, build a pike spawning marsh on a lake, Yes, you'd probably have to rely on that thermal cue to find some fish. A fish on the other side of the lake, I doubt it's going to find that. But gonna there are going to yeah. be some fish that find that, and eventually... If they're anything like the river herring or the salmon or the lampreys or any of the fish here on the East Coast that will do that, eventually, I imagine, you will have fish that start homing back to that area. So I definitely, most of the work I do is restoration work, and it's what I've worked around. And any little bit counts. So mm-hmm. 
I definitely always push for restoration, but you don't want to just be throwing restoration projects all willy-nilly. You definitely want to do your research because they're always pretty expensive. There are some cheap options, but you really want to make sure that you're restoring a piece of habitat because you can only restore so much. You want to make yes. sure you're restoring a piece of habitat that's going to have the biggest bang for your buck, if you will. Mm-hmm. But as far as the fish just finding it, I think it is a lot of dumb luck in some situations, but that's why we would go, we would give the fish a few years to see if they, if we get some fish straying to a new river and start utilizing that spawning area. But if nothing happens for a while, honestly, a lot of what it comes down to is we get a lot of funding to do these projects and like it or not, people want to see fish coming back. So it's extremely common to have those seeding projects even before restoration. So say the fish Mm -hmm. are at sea for four years before they return if you start seeding four years before your dam removal, when your dam removal happens, you're met with a bunch of fish going up through your passage. Now, say you just put $25 million into that dam removal, it looks really good for dam removal if you have fish coming back. So that does happen, and it just it is what it is. It's, if your funding sources are coming from a certain area, it, it really is something you have to do. It's how you, I don't want to say market, but market that afterwards is... Yeah. It's not really a restoration necessarily. You are restoring that river, but that run to call it restored because a bunch of fish came back. If the dam wasn't taken out, those fish would still come back. They'd just be smashing into the dam. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah, it's yeah. very interesting how it happens. But with that being said, for any kind of restoration for you know a musky spawning area, I think if your homework is done, every little bit counts. So. And I think they will utilize it. It's just a matter of, you know, how long. Yeah. And again, I, because I don't know if Muskie's home, if they do in fact home and you get a few fish to use it, that's all it takes. And fish will yes. start returning. I, I just, I really don't know if that's how they are. Now, to add on to that, <clears throat> you were talking about, you know, putting the little baby salmons and stuff like that in the rivers. Yep. What? Like, so let's just say you, you do your homework and you're like, all right, we think that this is the best spawning ground for muskies in this body of water and so you go you know you you make it better you throw down you know put some nice curtains there some pillows a couch (laughs) and so you make it really attractive to these fish okay so if you were to then you know overlap that with stocking do you think those little baby fish that don't know anything but the inside of a tank get dropped in there say well this is home now (laughs) well well do you i mean i know that there's probably nothing nothing out there that will say one way or the other. But in your opinion, do you think that like when those fish finally do leave that area, become adults, they're going to be like, I remember that when I was a kid. Yeah. D- does that. So, <clears throat> sorry, what was the second part? No, I'm like coughing and trying not to make it sound like it. <laughs> <laughs> well, the, the thing I would say with hatchery fish. Um, so I'm, I really like to let systems try and do it on their own, but we have to face the facts that that doesn't happen. <laughs> it does happen yeah. sometimes, but it, it really, as you guys know, you really need, a, in a lot of these situations, hatchery supplementation. And what you get out of a hatchery depends on the hatchery. It depends on the program. I think with the muskies that you guys have, they probably start them on pellets and then move them to minnows. My guess is mm-hmm. those fish, when they get into the lake, they know what to do, which is helpful. Um, a lot of the fish that we deal with will come out of tanks on pellets and they go right into a river system it's it's up in the air it depends who you talk to i'm going to choose not to have an opinion on that just because of it's kind of a contentious issue um but that being said if you look at striped bass restoration american shad restoration um any of the inland restorations or new you know 
new populations of pike that have started, new populations of muskies that started. It works. I mean, if, if you do it right, you can get those fish to come back. Um, the muskies here, I don't know if anybody necessarily knows the strain of muskies that we have. They're very barred. They're very pretty fish. Wherever they came from, they worked in our system amazingly. So they threw them in the headwaters, and these things have just taken off. They haven't stocked fish, as far as I know, since either the late 70s or early 80s, and they've just taken to the system like gangbusters. Huh. Um, there's plenty of places. If you went down to Connecticut and tried to start a muskie fishery, I don't know if you'd be successful with natural reproduction. I think you'd probably have to do hatchery supplementation. Um, and I think it's just because here we have a very, you know, our our systems have what they want to spawn. Um but I think, yeah, if you take a fish from a hatchery and put it into, you know, very good habitat, I think you have a much better chance than just throwing it willy-nilly. And at least for our East Coast coastal fisheries, um, that, I mean, the evidence is there for sure. So that that could be like the two-part thing because, like, Todd, you know, we, we've had discussions about this, you know, me, you, and Vance, and, um, you know, we're like, well, How's the fish going to know? Is it just going to randomly bump in? But, you know, now thinking about it, you, you actually dumped the little fish there. They That might, you might still, you know, you're not going to be, hey, we just fixed up this nice area for them to spawn. We're going to stop stocking. It's, mm-hmm. You might have to gradually wean it off after, mm-hmm. you know, oh, yeah. trap net yep. surveys and stuff. Yeah. And, well, could you and, do yeah, that? Most place, of the projects are. Could you, you know, it, it, if you have a place where, let's say you do do the restoration, you put it in there. It, you might not receive the benefits right away, but the nope. fish that do spawn there, if they do have a homing device to come back, yep. then all the little babies that survived there may come back to that same area. So yep. it might take a little longer than just like two years, but, you know, 10 years when they mature. You're probably going to have your classes area, coming you out of there. start seeing that. Yeah. Yep. Exactly. The thing that I like to say about hatchery work, unless you're doing supplementation, if you're doing restoration work, you're trying to work yourself out of a job. That is, <laughs> yeah, any kind yeah, of restoration yeah. hatchery, you want to work yourself out of a job, regardless of what people in those jobs say. If you're doing a restoration and say, well, we have a lot of these, you know, dam, a dam would be built in the 60s, say, and they say, okay, well, part of this mitigation for this dam is you need to build a fish hatchery to supplement the what's lost by this dam being here. And what it has honestly turned into is just that. It's supplementation. They grow a bunch of fingerlings. So in our case, they grow salmon to smolt form, and then they dump them in the river every year. Those fish aren't coming back because of... There's a many, many factors I won't even try and touch on just because I don't want to upset anybody that may be listening to salmon restoration. But <laughs> there's a lot of things keeping those salmon from being successful at sea or during the spawn. But what you end up with is you have a fish hatchery. The goal was restoration, and now it's supplementation. So yeah. it becomes a 60, 70, 80, 100-year job, and it's not coming back. And it's basically, I, I don't really consider it mitigation at that point because you didn't bring the fishery back. You're just supplementing what has occurred there. Yeah. So they're two very different things, and I think it kind of depends what your goal is. If you have a lake that... You know, you have, you know, say a native muskie strain, but very limited spawning area left because of, you know, whatever reason, likely you're going to end up with hatchery that is a supplemental hatchery just because of the fact that they're a sport fish and people want to fish for them. So if you have a lake that is only, you know, 
one muskie for 80 hours of casting, people aren't going to be happy. So it's kind of this double-edged sword here. It's We want this hatchery because we want to restore the lake, mm-hmm. but it kind of ends up being supplementation, which is okay yeah. if that's what it is. Yeah. So it's, you want to restore yeah, it a little all over the place. But not the whole way <laughs> because you're out of a job, well, that, I hear. I see what you're saying. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. All right. Now, <clears throat> you touched on this way back when. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to rewind this a bit. You were saying that in that one river that you could go up and catch a bunch of stunted fish or you could go downriver and get more of like the, the size variety, lower density. Yeah. Yeah. I want to talk a little bit about <clears throat> why, I mean, I kind of know why, but I'm going to ask the questions for people who might not know because yep. we talked about this on Sunday. Um, why do you think that is that way and what could be done to remedy that? Or is that a bad yeah. situation? And then what, if it's, so? So I'll start with whether or not it's a bad situation. And I. it depends who's looking at it. If you're looking at it from, you know, a natural standpoint, well, the muskies weren't even supposed to be here anyway. So anything that happens with the muskies, it is what it is. But say the muskies were supposed to be here and that naturally has happened. It's, it's bad from us as a recreational angler standpoint because we want to catch big muskies. Mm-hmm. But these are smaller lakes, you know, five, six hundred acres. They're very shallow, a lot of nutrient load. It's not likely that it can, it, it would be like if I came over to your house and ate all of your food for like two years mm-hmm. and you didn't get any food, you're going to eventually shrink. And yeah. anybody who's in your house who's trying to grow is not going to grow very well because I'm eating all of their food. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's kind of what happens in those lakes. You have a whole bunch of fish with no predators. They're, they are the apex predator up there. Um, and they're just kind of not running out of food, but it's so limited that the fish growth is slow. So it would be very interesting to take, say we take a 35 pound fish from downriver and then a five pound fish from upriver and age them. So look at some, some hard structure in that fish. Like I was saying before, you can age them like tree rings and look at that. You can actually look at the age per year and you can put together an index for basically at this age, what size should this fish be? And I'm sure you guys have seen that for places like St. Clair or St. Lawrence or mm-hmm. Beach Lake, somewhere where there's a lot of work put into growing big muskies. It would be very interesting to see here if that is the case. But basically, yeah, what it comes down to is just it's just limited resources. So when they first got into the system, there was a, a gentleman who actually, the reason I'm so stuck on all these ESOCs, there's a guy in my hometown who would write for the daily, the daily newspaper and he was a pike fisherman in Connecticut, but he would also go up and take these trips to northern Maine and up onto the St. Lawrence, and he would go for, for muskies. And it got me, you know, really addicted to it. But when he started writing, he was talking about, like, big pike in Maine, our big muskies in Maine. And when I went up there to go fish for them, you know, a big one's 32 inches. And we're, you know, catching 10 fish, and the average size is 26 inches. The difference was, you know, 25 years. So these fish, when he got there... They were a new fishery, so these fish are just housing trout and whitefish, which are gone now. There are no trout and whitefish in those areas. They've eaten them all. So now they have little yellow perch, which are very stunted, <laughs> and they've got some suckers, and they've got some fallfish. So their food source is extremely limited now, and they were on these you know, big, soft-rayed, high-protein fish, and now they're on these little, tiny, four-inch perch. So I think they just ate themselves out of house and home, and it's still a very good habitat. There's just less food. 
so they just grow a lot slower. They don't get as big. But then as you move down river, the river gets a lot larger. The densities get a lot lower. So you have fish that can live for you know some 30-some-odd years, and it's now 2018, so they've been in the system for almost 40 years. But that's really not that much time for a population to grow. So you get down to these, you know, this head pond that's, you know, 60, 70, 80 feet deep, and it's full of all these big soft raid forage fish, and white suckers and fall fish, and there's also an alewife run there. So we have fish coming from the ocean to spawn. It's a big, high-protein fish. They have a lot of food down there. It's going to be a really long time. I, I, I'm not going to make any suggestions or anything, but I imagine it's going to be not in my lifetime that those fish stunt down there just because there's so much food. <laughs> yeah. And based on talking with the people who fish there and what they run into, they're working a heck of a lot harder than I have to up here. So my guess is that it really is stunting based on a limiting resource is what I'm experiencing, and it's not that it's smaller fish that are slowly moving their way down river. Um, and I think you'll see that on lakes. If you have a lake, I think we talked about this the other night, where if you take a lake that doesn't have muskies and you put muskies in it, mm-hmm. you get, like, gigantism going on. And everyone's freaking out about the amazing large muskies in this body of water. It's because there's there's no limiting resource yet. They have space and they have food, and they just go crazy. Right. But eventually, I... the food is limited and the space is limited, and now you go from you know a fish per hundred acres to all of a sudden you have a few fish per acre. You're dealing with a lot more limiting resources. Right. The example I brought up. I've always understood it. Yeah. The, the the example I brought up was Malax back in I think what like 2006. When, yeah. when they were just, it was like the place for 50s. They thought the new world record was going to pop out of there. Mm-hmm. And, and and yeah, but they, they had stocked that whatever, I forget, 20, 25 years prior or something. Really? So <clears throat> I, I don't think Malax was had a natural musky population. Okay. And I could be wrong on that. I'm going off of some very old in fisherman articles. Mm-hmm. And yep. uh, they stocked it, and then all of a sudden these fish just got enormous. Yeah, Malax yeah. was the place. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, now you, it still puts out big fish, but it's not putting them out near as frequent. In its heyday. No. And, and you think that that has a lot to do with these fish running out of resources, eating out of house yeah. and home. Yep. Yep. Food just and just more, more fish showing up, and, you know, the pie has to be split. Yep. Even exactly. more. Okay. Now, that's kind of the classic example. So if you have like a farm pond with no fish in it, and you throw in bluegills and bass, like that's the classic combo. If you manage those and cull those fish, you can keep huge bluegills and huge bass the entire time you have that pond. It's a small pond. It's easy to manage. Mm-hmm. But if you have, and I, I really, I hate to say it, but in a lot of these places, say you have a smaller lake. Like if I went up there and started keeping all those muskies in those headwaters, eventually you thin them out for larger fish. And it's, I mean, it's obviously not something a lot of people want to hear, but mm-hmm. we have a lot of lakes down in Connecticut where guys are keeping the pike, and they really do. They keep a lot of the pike, and we just keep catching giant pike. And it's because there's not a lot of competition. And what we'll actually do, and I think a lot of the muskie fishermen probably do this, you know, all across the range, is if you move your way downstream away from the stocking sites, you catch a lot less fish, but you'll find bigger fish. And it's that same idea of, you know, there's more resources. So if you're willing to really explore an adventure further away from where the bulk of those fish are, you'll start getting bigger fish. I do it in Maine here all the time with largemouth bass because in our region it's a new introduction. We have largemouth bass in places that they just showed up in 2001, 1999, and I'll go to those lakes instead of going to lakes where the state stocked them in the 60s because 
they're a heck of a lot bigger right now because they don't have, they have a much slower growing season up here compared to, say, you know, somewhere in the southern range. But because there's not competition, they grow really fast. But so I'm actually finding fish that, you know, what I, southern New England, I'd be like, this is a giant bass. Wow. With quite a bit of regularity because it's, the ones that are there, they're just eating. They're just nonstop eating because there's just literally food. You're in the boat and you're looking down and there's just shiners everywhere. Now, if we go there in 15 years, I doubt it's going to be like that. And that's why there's this push to stop the, you know, quote unquote bucket biologists. Cause it really, I mean, in a region like this where we have, you know, where I think the largest continuous area of, um, like forested region east of the Mississippi, and that might be wrong, but I'm pretty sure I've heard that. And it's all, you know, native brook trout. And these fish are getting in there, and they're just housing the brook trout, because the brook trout aren't used to having a predator. Mm-hmm. They're used to being, you know, maybe the only fish in the pond. Someone throws bass in there, I mean, those trout are gone like that. The bass mm-hmm. are great for a while, but then they'll eventually start to stump out as well. So you have a lot of guys who are really getting into tournament angling here. They're about 30 years behind, but they're really getting into it. I'm seeing more and more of these bass boats. And you can literally watch, and every year a new bass lake shows up. It's terrible. I mean, if you enjoy fishing for bass, you can really enjoy it. So I'm making the best of a bad situation, but it's, I mean, it's running rampant right here because we're kind of the last untouched frontier up here of inland fisheries in this part <laughs> of the country. And everyone's just like, well, we want to catch bigger bass. We want to catch pike. Let's just keep moving them. And it's, yeah. you can catch some giant fish, but it's kind of sad when you know, like, I'm up there catching muskies. And, you know, years ago, guys were catching two and four pound native brook trout. And it's just, you know, you talk to the people up there and they're just like, ugh. Yeah, the muskies. Yeah. Right. So, so more, more or less to kind of sum this up, a system can only hold so many pounds. And yeah. whether it divides up into 10,000 fish or 100 fish, that's yep. just what it can support. Mm-hmm. And, yep. and, and, and you that, can obviously add to that and, you know, play with those numbers by adding more forage fish or taking out the predators. Mm-hmm. It's, that's, that's what fisheries management is. Um, sport fish mm-hmm. management is a lot of that. So, I mean... More or less, I, I like we like we've already talked, discussed this, but that is a great argument for possibly in some areas removing size limits and actually yeah. keeping some of these top shelf predators. I'm not saying any legal muskie to keep it, but yep. you, you just had the the actual you know the dictionary picture perfect situation yep. of. We got a lot of stunted fish. You go down over here, same same system. And so at, at what point, you know, does, let's just say they, they threw a 48-inch size limit on that stuff. You're literally, you, you can't be part of the, the solution there. Yep. Hmm. That's where slot limits come in a lot of times. So we'll do slot limits where you protect the large, you know, the larger fish, the big females, and you'll actually, you know, say, okay, well, you can take, I, I'm just going to throw out a number for muskies because I have no idea we do a lot of for bass, but say, you know, 24 to 38 inches. Okay, you can keep one of those a day. Mm-hmm. The idea being you'll thin out those smaller fish, but you're not taking away that gene pool, those very large fish, because you still, if you're doing it for a sport fish, you still want those large fish to be spawning to spread on that gene. If you're doing a st- strictly sport fishing here, this is we're talking sport fishing, mm-hmm. and but, I mean, basically what it comes down to is it. there needs to be more outreach, I think, from the fisheries managers. A lot of it is still very much closed doors, what goes on. But a lot of these musky lakes, this is how they're managed. I'm, I'm sure of it because it's how we do pike and walleye and bass. It's, it's just how it's managed. You, you're going out and you're 
sampling these areas and you're seeing what size fish you have. And if you start seeing a shift towards smaller fish and you're doing, we do a lot of what's called creel surveys, we'll go out and interview fishermen. If the majority of the people on that lake, so the majority of people putting money and resource into that lake want bigger fish, then we'll start managing for a trophy fishery, which then we'll start, okay, this isn't catch and release only. Let's start letting them harvest some of these smaller fish to free up some of that food and space. That's it's kind a very of... common thing that happens, and a lot of people do get very angry. I've mm-hmm. had people at you know, boat launch, yeah. why are you guys letting people keep the bass? And I'm like, well, this is why. You know, these are the people using the lake, the majority of the people who are you know, taxpayers using this. Because we're basically, you know, fisheries manager is your, your public servant. You really are. You're working for the people. So you do these creel surveys to get a general idea of you know, what the guides on the lake want, what the general public wants, the guy with the white bucket keeping the fish wants. And you, you basically go through and you see who the majority is, and you manage as such. And it's a lot of people will get very angry when they see fish being removed, but if you go back to the bass and bluegill in your pond, there's so many ponds behind people's house where the biggest bass in that pond, outside of maybe one who gets big enough to eat all of his brothers and sisters, they're stuck at 10, 12 inches. Mm-hmm. And yep. you manage that yep. and took yep. those fish out, now you start getting five, six, seven-pound fish. And it's just, I, I think there's just not enough public outreach to have that, you know, come across to people. Because I do, I get met with it, and then I explain it to people, and I'm like, oh, all right, that makes a lot of sense. It does. It's really hard, because there's so few of us, yeah. and there's so many recreational anglers, and there's such an area, and honestly, the funding just keeps disappearing. It's so much harder to find jobs and keep fisheries managers employed that it, it, it really comes down to, all right, well, these are the regulations, and we really don't, we can't afford outreach to get this out to people to explain why we're doing it. We're doing it based on good science, but we can't afford to tell them how we're doing it. That's inc- it's, it's that's incredible to hear uh, mm-hmm. to to hear uh-huh. how that's managed that way because when you say you know that opinion's going to be harsh on a lot of people's ears with the management oh, yeah. of keeping muskies. Yep. You say keep a muskie to yep. somebody, you know the guy that's very green in the sport, the veteran in the sport. Be like, there's oh, Facebook no. pages strictly for the bashing of people on with muskies, and and that's an embarrassment in itself. But. Um, <laughs> the it you have to have an open mind with it i'm kind of yeah. sh- i'm i'm kind of shocked to hear that i i always knew if you kept kept the musky whatever it happened mm-hmm. somebody did it there's nothing i can do about it I, I really could care less um when you do you know a small a small depiction of the bluegill and the bass in a pond mm-hmm. that makes sense to me yeah, it makes sense to me. They just switched the walleye limit on Chautauqua Lake to five at fifteen. Uh-huh. It was three yep. at eighteen. It was five yep. and fifteen twenty some years ago when I first started fishing up there. Uh-huh. That makes sense to me now. There is a ton yeah. of small oh, walleyes yeah. in there, um, and they created yep. an unbelievable fishery by doing that. And they did. In in you know, I I I can see. I know, like like Kevin just said, I can see where. I remember reading something where up in, you know, Minnesota, some of these places were like, we're going to stop stocking these muskies until someone starts keeping some of them. (laughs) It's it's hard to listen to because it's like, this is my muskie. I'm going to put it back. But I, I can definitely see the, see the point there. Like you're not going to have a good fishery unless you start taking some of these. We'll keep putting them in. If you keep taking a few, but, we're not just going to just keep putting these in because we're not creating a healthy. You're going to ruin it by not doing and, it. Yeah. Yeah. 
we're not going to create a healthy ecosystem here. Yeah, you know? it, it, and it happens here a lot because we have lake trout fisheries and landlocked salmon fisheries. And mm-hmm. historically, it was very much you went out and you got your limit. That was you know that was fishing up here. But now there's very much the you know the keep them wet, catch and release only. It's very much that mentality. And all of a sudden, the agencies are like, hey, you know, we should probably start keeping these because now all these fish are stunting. And you can go out mm-hmm. there and have an absolutely insane day, but they're all peanuts. And, like, some of the pike lakes up here that have been, you know, pike lakes for a while, it's hammer handles. That's all you catch. You don't catch any fish yeah. over five pounds. And it's for that exact reason. It's that well, no one's even bothering with the fish. There's some guys that go out there and ice fish for them. But for the most part, they just, they just stunted themselves out, and no one's out there doing anything about it. And... It's, you know, you have, once you've messed around with, you know, nature's way of, I mean, all of our systems at this point, it's, you know, we've messed with everything. Yeah. So now it's, you really have to, like, I I hate to say it, but you really, I mean, I I don't hate to say it, it's because you have to put faith in your managers that are out there working on these systems that, I mean, they they know, they're on those systems, they see those fish, and, Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm not going to say we don't make bad calls, it happens all the time, and history will repeat itself, and that's science. But for the most part, we try and do our homework the best we possibly can. And we wouldn't implement something if we thought it was going to harm what the majority wants. Unless it's something, if the majority wants a bunch of non-native, you know, someone was like, all right, we want a snakehead program. Snakeheads are awesome. We're probably not going to do that. <laughs> yeah. Because we don't want a bunch of snakeheads running around. Even if everybody was like, we want snakeheads. <laughs> for the sake of the environment, we're probably not going to do this because we don't know what they're going to do. They're not supposed to be there. But when you're dealing with a native fish or a fish that's, you know, become naturalized now it's been there for so long we're going to try and do our best to reach a management goal that is going to make again the masses happy or is going to be the best thing for that environment to try and you know bring things back to a i don't really know what the word is more natural state if that's yeah, a goal, a a balance, normal, a balance, normal a balanced population you know that's mm-hmm. it's very interesting so i'm not yep. gonna i'm not gonna dive too much further into this because I'm, I'm going to just kind of brush up against a couple topics that are very heated uh, on the internet. Is yep. I know this. When you catch a muskie with a spear, it's not very easily released. <laughs> yeah, that's bad. And, yeah, no, I don't think it takes off very well. And I don't know. Yes, it doesn't kick off very good. <laughs> I, I don't know any of the stuff ins and outs. But from just a basic view of actually looking at this topic from another view... You know, from the other side, like like what Kevin yeah. just kind of unfolded. Perhaps, even though we've been ingrained with this catch and release, that might actually be beneficial because everyone else is releasing these fish. Yep. Um, each each system is different. Yep. Some could that could be absolutely detrimental to it. Other systems could yep. really benefit from it. I'm not exactly. advocating for any of this on any waters. Yeah. Yeah, I'm yeah. just saying yep. from a standpoint of, hey, guys, if we're catching, you know, we used to catch one fish every two trips. Now we're getting three fish a trip every time, but they're all smaller. Maybe there should be a shift in opinion on this or at least yep. the consideration of it. And if you would have asked me this a week ago, I probably wouldn't have had that opinion. But I've talked yep. to Kevin twice about this already. And it, it there's a lot of fundamental, you know, just common sense stuff that just doesn't seem it's in front of you, but you just don't see it. 
Mm-hmm. You, yeah, you're you're exactly. so tunneled vision mm-hmm. of I don't like the way that guy held that fish. You 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 took too yep. many pictures with this. Yeah, it's dead. <clears throat> yeah, stop. You know, and and I get that. I mean, I have those those same thoughts will hit me, and I have to like step back a bit and be like, okay, like you know, take off the musky fishing helmet here and think about this from you know a management standpoint. Why why would we do this? And I mean, those lakes where they're they're talking about bringing spearing back, I basically would say those managers have their work cut out for them because you have yeah. people who look at it from a, well, this is historically what we did. This is how my family is always, you know, this is a winter fishery that we've, I mean, that's, that's someone's like values there. That's a really hard thing to say no. And then you have a whole bunch of people who they've been recreationally fishing under these regulations that are, well, you can't do that. And they're guiding there, fishing there. They're having very good success there. Now as a manager, even if you have that science, that says, well, yes, you can take these, or no, you shouldn't take these, someone's not going to like you. Yes. And they both have a very, <laughs> yeah. very big voice. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. That's where and you have to have really good research to back up what you're going to do. You can't just go in there and be like, this is what we're doing, and just because. Yeah. You need to have yeah. your research backed up and ready, and at the end of the day, a lot of people still aren't going to listen to your research. Like the, yeah. uh, well, I mean, this... Harvest is harvest, yeah. you know, if, 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 yeah. if you want to take them out. It comes back to, like, the hunting. You have guys who are like, I've never shoot one with a gun. I just shoot them with a bow. Well, guess what? If I don't shoot it with my bow, but I shoot with my gun, yeah. or if I do shoot it with my bow, it's a dead deer. Yeah. It's out of the system, you know. So yeah. I can see if you need to harvest some fish out of some areas and the fisheries are like, we're not going to stock anymore because there's already two per acre, and yeah. pe- people are going to be pissed about it. But oh yeah, no, for sure. I I, I yep. can see. I, I mean, I, I I can relate to that. <laughs> yep. You know, a dead fish is a dead fish. A dead deer. It doesn't matter if it's speared, caught. You know, in died, died of natural causes, whatever. They're all they all get taken out of the system, and I can see where there has to be a balance there. Yep. And really, like, oh, crap! I forgot the. I'm sorry, Todd. Keep going. I forgot. No, no. We're. No, I, I mean, mean, people are. Here's something that you might know about. Like, uh, you know, the gu- the guides would be be upset. Um, you know, if all of a sudden you you change size limits, you say keep these things. I mean, honestly, if that if that happened in any of our fisheries, I'd be like, man, that that really really sucks. Um, but yeah. what's happening on our lake uh, where Todd and I fish, and um, they're spraying weeds. Uh, they yeah. want to. They want to stop the weed growth to prevent essentially an algae bloom, uh, that blue-green algae uh, that happens yep. on Chautauqua Lake. And people were flipping over it. They're like, "This is dead fish. Everything's going to die. It's going to be a bathtub. We're all screwed," you know. And uh, so it's essentially like fish pe- fishermen versus. Yep. You know, versus the homeowner there on the lake that's like, you know, exactly. it smells like shit here. I want this stuff sprayed. <laughs> yeah. And the fishermen, and... the fishermen are like, my weeds, you know, mm-hmm. just nat- yeah. natural instinct like that. What's your opinion on that? What I think that if, you know, I don't think that they can ever suppress the uh, the weed growth totally on uh, the natural, our lake. On, uh, our lake. on Chautauqua Lake, unless they filled yeah. it with cement. Yeah. 
Um, <laughs> and I'm and I'm just like you know it's something I'm gonna have to deal with. I'll work through it, and uh, you know yep. we'll we'll get fish. I I don't think that it's gonna kill the entire population. Um, yeah. and we'll get through it. But uh, what do you, what's your thoughts? So there's a couple things when you go through and start doing weed removal that can happen, and this would be chemical weed removal. So you kill the plant, and the plant stays there unless they're going to go out and mechanically harvest the floaters afterwards. I'm not sure, um, but what can happen if you go through and you do a chemical treatment, there's a chance that water clarity reduction can occur. Um, I don't know what I'm, I'm I'm familiar with your lake, but not to the point of knowing what water clarities are. Um, and you can also have a loss of some of the native plant species that might help keep the water clear. Um, yeah. But what also can happen is you there's a bunch of different things that can happen, um, getting right down to like things like phosphorus and you know chlorophyll. So I won't I won't even go that far into it. Um, but basically, what because I think what they're doing, what they proposed there was like a spot treatment. And if I look, I tried to find a, you know, kind of background. It looked like I found their plan for the lake. And it looks like they want to treat about 8% of the surface area of the lake. And it looks like mm-hmm. it's for curly pondweed and Eurasian water milfoil. If I, if I read that correctly, it might have been an older paper that I found. But they had a list of, like, four different um, herbicides they want to use. And they had very specific regions of the lake highlighted where they wanted to go and do spot treatment. So they weren't trying to, like, quote-unquote, nuke the whole lake. It was more like mm-hmm. spot treatment for those non-native plants. I've read a lot of papers where they've gone in, they've treated non-native species, and native species have been able to come back in. I've also read a lot of papers where it didn't work. So it's definitely very site-specific. Um, but some of the things that can happen from that is, you know, sometimes those herbicides can decrease phytoplankton. And so a lot of people will panic about that because if you have, you know, loss in phytoplankton, now your zooplankton has nothing to feed on. And then your juvenile fish that feed on zooplankton so there's been a lot of studies that look into that, and what the ones that I read found is that the zooplankton will switch to other like macroorganisms, other small organisms to feed on, and at least in those papers, it didn't seem like it was a problem, and they also found that you actually get an increase in energy gain in predators, because now the juvenile fish have less hiding areas, so that can be a good mm-hmm. thing and a bad thing. If you, if you have too much of that, and you lose those native plants that used to be at, again, I don't know what the, you know plant mass was before the non-native plants came in and started making thick mats. Um, I don't know if it was that the native plants grew in thick mats, but if you do that and the native plants don't come back and now it's all open water, there's a chance that you might have too much, you know, compared to what was natural, so to speak. I mean, it's really hard to have a lake surrounded by houses and say anything is natural anymore, but yeah. you have that chance. Um, but I know that the stuff on the St. Lawrence with the muskies, the juveniles, they, they really use those submergent plants. So I don't know what size they stock the juveniles into there, um, but I imagine they're not tiny. They're not probably, you know, two or three inches. I imagine they're probably a little bit larger than that. you know what size they put them in as? Like yeah, they put them in eight to 12 inches. Yeah. You know, they, they grow okay. them the whole season. Yeah. Yeah, so at that point, I don't know how much reliance they have on those. I'll just keep I'll say macro, the, the macrophytes. It's just basically underwater plants. So I'll just throw it into one big group. I don't know to what point they need that, but other fish in the lake... You know, before they're large enough to feel as though they're not, you know, threatened by predators, they're going to use those macrophytes. So that, there's a chance that can happen. As far as going back to, like, water quality, because I'm not, I, I just don't have a background in that, I wouldn't, I don't really know how to comfortably 
answer what could possibly happen. Mm-hmm. I just know that there's definitely been some papers where what they so they do what's called a secchi disc reading. You have this you know white and black disc that you drop off the side of the boat and you count it down in meters and until it disappears, you can see how many meters of clarity you have. And one of the papers, um, you know, they did. I think it was in Wisconsin. They had five lakes that they went through and treated, and I think three of the five after the treatments. And these were total lake treatments, so it was basically. The whole lake is treated with herbicide. Yeah. Um, they had a decrease, and that might be because you lose those macrophytes, now the bottom gets turned up a lot easier from mm-hmm. you know, just wind-driven forces. But it also might be that as those are dying, there's you know there's more nutrients in the water now, and you might actually get you know increased turbidity. What the reasons for? I, I just that's just I don't have a background in that. I'm not sure. Um, the one thing that I will say that you guys will definitely notice because I've you know, here in Connecticut, and our back home in Connecticut, our Pike Lakes, I was talking with Andy about this, where the state came in and treated these lakes that I knew inside and out. We could go out there. It was mostly ice fishing season. We'd go out there. We knew where our weed lines were. It was so easy. You could literally you cut your hole, you put your bait down, you knew exactly when it was going to happen, and they were there. They treated the weeds, and those weed lines stayed through the winter. Like, we were looking, you know, we'd drop our, we had like a... Yeah little searching hook we drop down and find the good green weeds and that's where we'd fish that's how we found our spots those weeds disappeared and we stopped catching fish <laughs> now mm-hmm. it's not that the fish weren't still there because depending I, all of these rely on how the herbicide is used it needed to be used as you know described so when they go through and they do these plans they're not going to allow them to put herbicides in at a level that are going to kill fish they're just not going to do that if it's followed correctly, you would assume that the fish are still there, by theory, by, you know, all these different, I've uh, gone through a, a list of a bunch of different chemical treatments, and they, you know, they do studies on these to see if they actually kill fish. And though they're killing the fish, the fish is moving. Or, you know, now there's nowhere for those smaller fish to hide, so they're being consumed. But so you have, it's an indirect effect on the fish. It's not the chemical that's doing, in, in theory here, assuming everything is, you know, placed out correctly it's not the chemical that would kill the fish it would be an indirect effect of the chemical and what happens to that ecosystem that can do it now in my case with those pike i don't think it's that the pike weren't there it's that all of a sudden we had no idea where to locate those fish anymore mm-hmm. we had a lake that's 40 mm-hmm. feet deep we would fish you know five feet of water eight feet of water on this weed edge now the weeds are gone and all of a sudden we're literally faced with legend muck and we could not find weeds anywhere and we went back in the summer and we searched and those weed lines were gone and we mm-hmm. could not find those fish. We just gave up on the fishery. Guys still catch big pike out of there, but it's more or less people just going out there and bumping into these fish. Mm-hmm. We had very much put our homework into finding those fish and consistently going to those spots. That's the sort of thing, especially we have Eurasian water milfoil here, and it's all through Connecticut. It's a horrible weed that chokes you know, systems out, but stuff is awesome for fishing. <laughs> you find that stuff, and yes. you work the edges of it, yeah. and the fisher, they're in it. They love it. Yeah. And when that goes away... All of a sudden, you have to, okay, now where are we going to go? Like, what, you know, what are they staging up on now? You get into, like, a really good rhythm of, all right, they're always on this. And there's lakes up here where, those, you know, the Eurasian watermill foil has just showed up. And there's another plant called fanwort. It looks kind of like a coontail type um, plant. You find those little mats of that stuff, there's pike sitting in them. Mm-hmm. And it's plain to yeah. say. You stand in the bow of the boat, and you just keep moving until you see green weeds, and boom, you start drifting that spot, and instantly you're into fish. And when they treat it, and we go back, they'll chemically, they'll, they'll, you know, they have divers that go and remove it. Those fish aren't there anymore. <laughs> so it's, yeah. it's not that the fish are yeah. gone because that's a, you know, that's a physical removal. They're doing it by hand. They're not even going in there with one of those boats. Okay. The fish just aren't there anymore because the habitat that they were utilizing is now gone. 
Okay. Now, so you're you're sa- you're saying that just for you know somebody who doesn't have that scientific of a background in this stuff, the chemical that they spray on the fish isn't going to hurt the fish, but essentially, used, yeah, if it's, if it's used correctly, on, good God, I hope it is. But if you spray, it kills these weeds. The fish are going to bounce and go somewhere else. They're not going to be there. Yeah. Yeah. Or they're going to stay there and get eaten. Yes, they could stay okay. there and get eaten. They yeah. could stay there and get eaten. Yeah, they're not going to be there because they use that for cover. And, and Well, okay. let, let's let's take this and make some lemonade, shall we? So let's just say they treat 8% of the lake's surface area. Yeah. I'm, I'm going to round this up to 10%. All of a sudden, you're taking those fish that were in that 10% and you're pushing it in the other 90%. And those yeah. fish might find the best 10% that was near them. You could all, you know, artificially make some super hot spots. You could. I can, yes. I can yeah. tell you this. They sprayed uh, a bay last year. Okay. And I can honestly say, I, cu- I caught fish there the, the year before. It was a nice little hot spot for me. Mm-hmm. Found this little inside pocket, and there was, there was fish in there. I went back a couple times last year. The weeds weren't there. They were gone, and the fishing was, was a dump. It sucked. Um, yeah, no surprise at all. Todd. Yeah. We didn't even spend time in there last year because it sucked. Yeah. Um yep. You know, we eventually found fish other places, but they weren't there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It was just It was it was gone. I mean so and, I, and, I and, and, and here's the thing about the sprays. Can can you okay, so they say that curly tail whatever something what's it called Vance yep. curly something that they're trying curly to leaf pond weed. yeah, yeah they're, curly, they're trying like the slang yeah. term for so it. can yeah so can they put a spray in there that's going to kill those one and not the other weeds yeah and keep the others like they're talking about eurasian milfoil on chautauqua and yep. i'm just a fisherman but yep. i've been fishing there for 40 years and i've talked to people i'm on a I'm a part of a group up there is trying to, and I was like, you, you have to realize that Eurasian milfoil now on our lake after 40 years, that is the weed. That oh, is yeah. our weed. Yep. We, the, the yep. others are gone. You know, yep. you, you can't find that cabbage like we used to have when I was a little kid. You know, that, yep. that is it it, 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 to me, it's not even invasive anymore. That is what yep. our weeds are. Yep, and realized. Yeah, I mean, th- that's just what it is. And I've adapted yep. to it, and my fishing has changed. I've bumped out because there's this huge mat that I can't fish in. I'm not fishing yep. in the same areas. Everything's out further from shore. Everything's a little different. But, you know, to, to look at Eurasian milfoil where we are as an invasive species, I think, is, is incredibly naive to these people. Yeah. Yeah, that's southern New England's the same way. I mean, even our smaller lakes, you go out there and there's like that there's that species fanwort and there's that species Eurasian water milfoil, and there's also another one called variable leaf milfoil, and they're all they're all invasive. But you go to these mm-hmm. lakes and that's all there is because they've choked out you know the you know the yes. ladderwort and all these other little species. I mean, they're literally gone. So you're fishing over this green carpet, and mm-hmm. unfortunately, I mean, it's unfortunate that that's what happened, but it's. If you, yeah, if you go through there, and that's the thing, that's, again, where it comes back to that science. You really need to go and do these transect surveys. You know, you take a line, you follow it, and I, I don't know, I didn't read enough into that report if that was done, but you really need to go and identify, okay, if we kill this, what's going to come back? Because if your yes. goal is to bring back a native species, 
then great. And then hopefully there is a chemist somewhere who's figured out, well, this only kills this species. But if this is strictly a, like, well, I don't want that in my backyard, and, yeah, they're not thinking about, well, what's going to be that they don't want anything. And yeah. I looked at the list, and there's they have three or four different kinds of chemicals listed that they want to use. Now, I don't know mm-hmm. if there's a reason if those, you know, if they disperse at different rates and they're doing this in a different region of the lake because, well, this this is a windy area, so this one sinks faster, and that's why we're going to use that. Or if it's species-dependent, I'm not sure. I didn't look them up. I just looked to see what there were being used. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I'm not sure, but you would hope it's not just a, well, we just don't want the weeds, so do your, you know, your environmental impact study that you have to do, but just get the weeds to go away. It, because I'm not familiar with that system, I know in Connecticut we have some lakes that if you went in there and you put an herbicide on that lake, there aren't a bunch of native species waiting in line to come back into the lake. They're just, it's now naturalized. I mean, it's the same reason that, like, the majority of our lakes in Connecticut are largemouth bass, bluegills. Neither of those fish are native to Connecticut, Mm -hmm. but that's just what's there. That is probably (laughs) the most common fish to catch in the state of Connecticut, and Mm -hmm. they're not supposed to be there. And if you you wanted to nuke a bass lake of bass, it's not like up here. They can still rotate on a lake up here, and there's not public outcry. I mean, to a degree. If you want to do that in Connecticut, it would never happen. And it is. It's region to region. Well, what is, we know it's native, and we know it's wild. So wild fish being, so say we have all these brown trout. Brown trout are from Germany originally. But there's all these wild brown trout fisheries out in the middle of nowhere in this country. And it's because people put them there, and now they're wild. They're not native, but they're wild. Mm -hmm. And it just basically becomes naturalized. So it, again, comes to this awful, like, it's a conundrum and a half, because it's, yeah, it's you... We saw it in Connecticut all the time because they do summer draw or winter drawdowns, and they do mechanical harvest, and they do chemical harv or chemical treatments. And yeah, really, it comes down to. And we've had definitely some cases where it's like two or three people that are trying to grease the palms of the local politicians and kind of be like, "Hey, you yes. know, we really want our lake to not be a weed fest anymore." And it's yep. you know how that goes about coming into hey yeah let's let's treat it. Who ends up paying for it? I mean, there's definitely a lot of lake associations that pay for drawdowns and pay for chemical treatments mm-hmm. because to them, that's their backyard. And that's, you know, it's just like somebody wanted to fertilize their lawn, they do the same thing in reverse. Yep. So, yeah, I would, I'd, but basically, I'd hate to be on that committee. <laughs> it would be <laughs> yeah. brutal yeah. because yeah. it's, yeah, you don't. I mean, it certainly sounds like the other side once it's sprayed because of property value and they just don't want any of the weeds mm-hmm. in the lake. That's that's the argument there. That's why this has all initially been brought up. I think that they yep. could, they could, um, you know, to somebody who's like a lay person in, in all this, uh, try to, you know, put make it seem like it's more reasonable because of like, well, we're trying to bring it back, you know, to mm-hmm. our yep. natural yep. weeds. Yes. But in, in all reality... Oh, yeah. You know, they just want it to be a bathtub. Yep. And, and that's a huge argument that I get all the time with, mm-hmm. say, predator fish gets into a system. The argument is, well, we have to get these native fish back. But if there's not going to be a push to get those native fish back, it's a really hard sell. Right. And so, what it basically comes down to is now you have ecological versus economical, which is exactly what you guys have right now. Mm-hmm. And yeah. it's, you know, the economics of it versus, well, what's the ecology? And what you'll end up getting is the people who are looking at it from an economic standpoint will come around behind you and really start looking at the eco lot and they're like, oh, all right, I'll bring this back. But if the work isn't done to see if there's something to replace those weeds, I mean, they're going to, at that point, yeah, it's just... I heard somebody talking about, I heard some, one of the, one of the person that was for spraying, they were like leaning out of their, 
their boat telling me they're like yeah they're gonna spray it and i was like well what there's gonna be no weeds they're like no we want to bring back like you know pond weed what we call musky weeds and uh he's like the way they're gonna do it is it's down there it's just (laughs) you have to wait you have to dig for it it's like down there 25 feet underneath underneath the uh you know the sand bottom of chautauqua lake it's still there (laughs) you just got to dredge it up so you're gonna bring in a, a, a dredging system yeah which will cost millions of dollars. It, it sounds very feasible. Where do <laughs> I sign? Dredge at 18 like, miles. How the hell do you, How the hell do you know that it's down there? There's probably bloodworms down there too. <laughs> bloodworms. Yeah, that guy. Inside joke. Inside joke with that. But um, yeah, like what did that dude do? Did he go down there and dig? Is he like you know? Yeah, did he dig 20, it, 25 feet. It's probably echo chambers. Just people are are hearing what they want to hear, and yeah. they justify their yep. side and when i when i drew a blank there or whatever 20 minutes ago uh, this this also i remember what it is now but it plays perfect perfectly into what we're talking about is that this is not an original idea of mine i heard this somewhere but they said uh you know for a politician or someone making decisions if each side is yelling at the same volume at you you strike the yep. equilibrium that that is the middle ground there is when both sides are equally mad mm-hmm. because no one's going to be happy unless it's hundred percent their way. So if you get yeah, both yeah. screaming at you, you know you did your job. Yeah. And uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, we're like an hour and a half into this, and and we could we could go on for days. <laughs> it's dicey. It, it is. <laughs> it, it was dicey. <laughs> but uh, I love it. I, I wanted to. I wanted to come back because I don't want people to be like, man, that Andy. He wants to jam them metal spikes into my muskies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. I, I listen, <laughs> but not not one of, one of us think that it's okay to keep a muskie. We're not gonna we're not gonna do that, and we're not gonna <laughs> preach that and teach that when we're out on yep. our charters. I, I am no longer gonna be the guy that's sitting there. I gotta educate this guy. Well, we, we never were. Right. You know, we do it, not. We're, we're not that. But you know, it was. You know, there, there's my opinion after being able to openly talk about this stuff for yeah. whatever 150 shows now mm-hmm. you know it has rounded off a bit to be more like you got to look at the whole picture stuff here yep. just yep. because just because someone catches a muskie and keeps it you know some kid on a barbie pole got it and you're bashing them because they kept the 46 on some water 1200 miles away from you i don't think that it's your spot to sit there and call them out mm-hmm about this stuff you're never going to see that fish anyway mm-hmm. and if you were to drive there you probably would have passed ten thousand of those fish that size just driving down the highway yeah passing the the, the local waters but you know i want to at least touch back onto that stunting thing because i i remembered everything and i feverishly wrote it down so i wouldn't sound stupid again was uh <laughs> if it in that situation where there's a bunch of stunted fish and we're going to we're going to pick on Kevin's muskies that are 26 inches long <laughs> eventually something is going to take that back to a balance and it's probably not going to be a guy who kept 3 a year and some no, other you yes. know some other anglers it's going to probably be a 90% wipeout of yep. nature nature now what was the big one vhs <laughs> that hit or yep. did chautauqua yep. lake get one with oh, a red yeah. spot or something mm-hmm. yeah it i'm um, tuning got hit with it hard back in the 70s the fishery was insane red spot uh red spot is up in the course lakes red spot you know nature does its thing yeah so yep. 
to to see someone it's, uh, it, it, it's much uglier when nature does it oh, and <laughs> like, it's quick it's very quick you'll notice it immediately <laughs> it's, it, it's not a little let's harvest some fish let's take some fish out of this fishery it is like okay your fishery is screwed now for quite yeah, some time the ice comes off and it's nothing it still looks like there's ice because it's white <laughs> bellies floating up mm-hmm. and you're like well my summer's plans have changed mm-hmm. so yeah. That yeah. that is the alternative. I'm not saying keep every muskie. I'm not saying spear every yeah. muskie. I'm just saying keep an open mind and think about this holistically. Here, if your average muskie catch has dropped eight inches in in the time that you've been fishing a lake, maybe start thinking about something. I'm not saying take action. Mm-hmm. Talk to uh, biologists, managers. <laughs> take action. I mean, no. I mean, you you can you can get in touch yeah. with with the the fish commission in Pennsylvania, the Pennsylvania Fish Commission. Oh, yeah. like, oh absolutely. I mean, not saying. Yeah, email people. Yeah, the, you'd be amazed. I, I I'm always shocked when people say things about you know negatively about an agency. I'm like, well, have you reached out to them? They're like, oh, they won't get back to me. I'm like, they probably will. And we've had you know where I worked, we had people come out and volunteer to go electro fishing. Mm-hmm. I mean, people loved that. It just you know we were hit up for. You know, help. I mean, we were hard hit for help. We didn't really have help, and people would call and be like, "Yeah, here's your piece of paper to sign your life away." But come on out, come see how we do it. Yeah, well, yeah, I mean, you know, being, it's being great. reasonable. It's fun to do. I've done yeah. it. It, it. That's like a being real. You know, that's not even like work. That's like a fun day. Yeah. <laughs> oh, it's amazing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's awesome. Being reasonable is a lot less fun than being mad all the time and yeah. you know, yeah. bitching. Yeah. But you know, what are you going to complain about? But Right. Well, I'm going to wrap this one up here because, like I said, we could keep going, and we're definitely going to be having Kevin back on because we didn't we'll even, yeah we didn't scratch yeah. the surface on any of this it was, stuff. Oh, it was great though. I thought this was fantastic. Thanks for coming on, man. Oh uh, yeah, no, thanks for having me. It was a pleasure. Hopefully, uh, hopefully I hit everything right, and if not, I hope someone lets me know. <laughs> well, no, I I, th- I think you did a fantastic job. Mm-hmm. Um, but. I'm going to get through these uh, these plugs real quick and end this thing here. So, Fatty Z Muskie Products, Muddy Creek Fishing Guide, St. Croix Rods, um, Vicks Marine Sports Center, Ranger Boats. Check all those out. Big supporters of the show. Also, the Chautauqua Lake Showdown, Chapter 69 on Chautauqua Lake, June 23rd. Uh, that's, uh, that's a Muskie Zinc branch right there. So, big thanks to Muskie Zinc. They're the reason why the thing we have the fisheries that we, we have right now. Uh, the big push for the catch and release. I know that might sound contradictive to what we just talked about with, you know, selectively taking some fish and listen to the show. But I'm just saying that it comes to a tipping point and you got to be reasonable, keep an open mind. But big thanks to Muskie Zinc. And until next time, guys, uh, good luck fishing. Thanks for listening.